once again. <clears throat> uh, Lord, please uh, be strong in your role as the great shepherd of the sheep today, and may I be a fitting and useful under-shepherd of your flock. Uh, may the truth be spoken in love, and may truth and love balance one another in equal measure. Give everyone here discernment to weigh everything against your word and grace to hold on to what is good. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this uh, will be the last you asked for it sermon this summer. If you have turned in a question that didn't get addressed from here, you'll still get an answer. It might be a Sunday school class or it might be personal. It'll be some way, but... You know, I obligated myself to answer them all, and I will. There's a, there's a few left, but this is the, the last sermon. The questioner for today uh, knows going in that I generally take a dim view of after-death or near-death accounts of heaven and hell. Uh, dim view. The words dim view were the very words used of my likely perspective when this one particular such book was... Uh, placed in my hands a few weeks ago uh, a few years ago you know how, how did that dim view come about or, or at least that perspective that I'm likely to have a dim view a uh, few years ago uh, there was a, uh, a you asked for it question and someone asked me to weigh in on the then and probably still wildly popular uh, 90 minutes in heaven by Don Piper Six million copies sold, I think. Uh, Don Piper is a pastor in Texas. He'd had a horrible, ghastly automobile accident. He was declared dead by EMTs on the scene. Uh, he was prayed over by another pastor just passing by. <coughs> I think they'd been to a conference or something, and he was coming back, and one, someone else stopped and another pastor and prayed over him. And, and after 90 minutes there at the roadside at the accident scene, if I, if I remember it right, uh, he showed signs of, of being alive and, and, uh, and was, uh, you know, take it, taken it from there. But in those 90 minutes, he, he says, that he, he had died and he went to heaven and he saw the sights and, he, and, uh, and there were a few things. And someone asked me to weigh in on the book, you know, and I read it and, you know, and there were a few things in my reading that that made my uh, credibility radar kind of beep a little bit. You know, it just made it gave me gave me pause. <coughs> I thought it strange that he didn't mention a word about this remarkable experience for something like a year or two. Like it's been a while since I looked at a year or two years, and he didn't make it. He didn't say it. He didn't report it to anybody. He didn't say anything to his wife. He, not to his closest friends. He's a pastor of a church, and he had, of course, he was laid up in the hospital for months and months. But people coming by, his elders, his, not to his doctors, not to anyone. You know, the the apostle Paul had a heavenly vision that was so real that he could not say. He says he. He says, I can't tell you, and this is, it's written in third person. He says, I know a man. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I know a man. Most people think 
he's talking about himself in a, in a, it, it, almost everybody says and i'm gonna assume that he's talking about himself i know a man but he's so if it's paul he says it was so real to i can't tell you whether it was a vision i had just in my mind or in my heart my spirit or whether my body was actually transported to heaven it, that's how real it was and and by the way I have no doubt whatsoever that Paul's vision or visit to heaven, whatever it was, was absolutely authentic, so I don't have a dim view of all of them, right? That's one I, I believe in wholeheartedly. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he's forbidden to talk about it, to describe it as things that he saw and things that he heard. He's just forbidden to say. He says man is forbidden, which is very quite the opposite of uh, Down Piper, all the other modern heaven tourism authors who, who insist. He, in other words, he didn't, he didn't remain quiet for that time because he was forbidden to. He doesn't say that. Uh, but it's the opposite of people who insist their stories must be told to build up the faith of believers and persuade unbelievers to believe and be saved. And, and in Don Piper's case, during the time of his silence, he, he, when he hadn't told anybody about this experience that he had, he, I can't remember how many surgeries he had over this period of, you know, tw- a year or 18 months or two years, whatever it was. It's some extraordinary number. It's been a while since I looked at the book, but it was, it was a lot, it was all these surgeries, 38 or 18 or there's, you know, it's a long, a lot of surgeries. And what came to my mind is that he'd spent the better part of a year or two marinating in morphine, and, and there's no telling what he thinks. There's no telling what he might think he, he had happened to him over, the, over that time. So, so, you know, there were just a few things that just as a, as a person, you know, just that made my credibility uh, radar go off a little bit. And I, I also confess that I am generally suspicious of profit motive in Christian publishing and even in Christian ministry. You know, profit with a F, not with a PH. I'm suspicious of it. And I, for one, am thankful that the New Testament was written in ancient times, not in modern times, so that we are not burdened with Romans teen edition or 1 Corinthians the movie or anything like that. And I, 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 and I confess generally, I, I'll just have to put it out there so you can, so when I say, when I get to the substance of today's question, you know, you say, well, okay, he has some biases. I'm trying to admit to all my biases here so you can factor it in. And I, and I confess that I find it troubling that there is an actual identifiable and spoken of genre of Christian publishing called heaven tourism a couple of years ago Alex Malarkey the subject of the boy who came back from heaven sold a million copies made into a TV movie a couple of years ago, this boy, grown up a little bit, he admitted that the book about him and his trip to heaven was all a lie and a hoax. 
And they'd pulled back from it, but they couldn't. The wheels are still rolling. <laughs> well, no, they're not quite rolling. Tyndale uh, pulled, Publishing withdrew the book. They did, they did withdraw the book, even though there's still people, the, the Malarkey, the Alex Malarkey would say, still people trying to make money off of, uh, off of his story, which he now says is false and didn't happen. Uh, Tyndale did pull the book, they, but they had been marketing. The, they pulled it. But they had been marketing it as, quote, a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God. Lifeway Christian Stores pulled the book. Later, they uh, stopped selling altogether what they called in their press release about we're not going to sell these books anymore. They had said they were no longer be selling, or they would be, they would be withdrawing all quote all heaven visitation resources. I said, I'm sure that didn't mean they were suspending their their sales of Bibles, which is the only heaven. Well, I'm tipping my hand here, but it was the only heaven heaven visitation resource that you need and is reliable but it did mean they're pulling 90 minutes in heaven you know that one i uh you know offered some thoughts on with its six million copies sold heaven is for real 10 million copies sold so so i i'm going to admit right up front that i i bring a certain level of skepticism to the subject in general and and you might be tempted to pass off i'm trying to be honest but you might be tempted to pass off my remarks as the prejudices of a cynical old man <laughs> but my general suspicions aside what is much more important and much more weighty and should be considered very carefully by anybody is where these heaven visitation resources describe heaven and or hell in unbiblical ways or deny or alter or change a little bit import, other important biblical doctrines like how do you get to these places <laughs> and who goes to these places and why and how When I, when I was asked to weigh in on 90 Minutes in Heaven, the Piper book, it seemed to me, and this goes beyond my suspicions, you know, my just general suspicions, but it seems to me he, makes, he made two main points about heaven, the nature of heaven. And one of them was that there's no time in heaven. There's no time in heaven. It's timeless. Time is not a thing in heaven. Time doesn't pass, it just is like a state of being sort of thing, rather than a, it's just time, it's hard to think about, because he talked about sequence, then this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened, then they took me here, and they took me there, I'm like, how do you do that without time, but he said, it was no time in heaven, and it made me think, or even back then, we had this, came up in the Sunday school class today, but Revelation 8.1 says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 
Revelation 8.1 says, There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So if time does not exist in heaven, how could there be silence in heaven for half an hour? Who are we to believe? John Piper? Or John the Apostle? Which, by the way, the whole book of Revelation is a record of another heavenly visit Someone who was, you know, had a vision of heaven was there and you know, saw heaven and came back to tell about it, and that's a, visit, a heavenly visitation I believe fully in, so I'm not skeptical about all of them. The whole book of Revelation is one. And so, that, so but that was his first point, the, the timelessness of heaven. And it's very, you know, it's a very common idea. We say, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, when the, we sing sometimes when the roll is called up yonder and, you know, or time shall be no more. Well, I, when I'm made to sing it, I sing it, but I, but I add a word, time no more concern. Because <laughs> there's going to be time. The, the second point, the, the second big point that Piper seemed to me to make about heaven is that the music was just so beautiful and it just blended all the styles you know there was you know all the different styles of the different races and the different generations and it just came together in a a big beautiful you know it wasn't classical and it wasn't modern it wasn't reggae and it wasn't this was it but it was just all kind of came together in just beautiful music and i simply observed that where there is no time, there can be no music. That music is a beautiful, if it's beautiful music, a beautiful way of marking time. They're just, they're just in, timelessness and music are incompatible. So, on the whole... Between my general suspicions, you know, my suspicious nature about, you know, what, he didn't say anything for two years, and he's been, how many operations, and how much pain, and my general things, and then the specific things about uh, the things he wrote about heaven that say, that doesn't seem to square. <coughs> so on the whole, I found Don Piper's 90 Minutes in Heaven underwhelming and uh, unpersuasive and and ultimately unhelpful and my observations were not universally appreciated so you know it's like what about I mean how God is is using this wonderful book to reach so many people and people are believing more and in heaven they're you know, their faith is built up and they're being reached and God is using it and people are doing it and people are buying it and they're giving it to lost people and they're being saved. What about, what about all that? And so I, so I realize that when people ask me about these things, like when I get a you ask for a question like this, it's because they find it valuable and encouraging or faith building and I want I'm a pastor 
I want your faith to be built up. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know that heaven is real. And hell too, for that matter. But I want your faith built up in accordance with the truth that has been revealed to us in this heaven visitation resource. Let's not say visitation. There are not many visits. This heaven relocation resource. It matters what your faith is in. Uh, the, the content of your faith matters. It isn't just how strongly you believe what you believe in. It's important how strongly you believe in what you believe in. But it matters what you believe. And if your faith and if my faith is not subject to the correction of the Scriptures, you're, just, you're not letting the Scripture do what it's supposed to do. What's 2 Timothy 3.16 say? All scriptures inspired by God are breathed out by God and profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There have been lots. So two of those things are negative. Reproof and correction, right? Training, you learn how to do things. Teaching, you knew, you find out things you didn't know before. But reproof and correction, there's some things you're doing that aren't right. And some things you believe that are not right. And the scripture is, is useful for adding to beliefs that you have that you didn't know about, adding truth, but also correcting errant beliefs. There have been lots of times over the years that I have come to change something I believe because of being convinced that the Scriptures teach something else. So, if I challenge a belief that has comforted you or has helped you believe more strongly. Try to remember that I've, that I'm speaking to you as a as your pastor, <laughs> as your pastor. If you call me such, uh, think of me that way. But as a, a shepherd, what's a pastor? Is a shepherd who has a responsibility before God to care for your soul. And if it, if it rubs against something that you've thought well of in the past, that uh, remember my goal is not to take away something from you that you found helpful, but to help you see it from the perspective of the Scriptures, which is our plumb line for what we believe and how we live as Christians. And, I, and I'd remind you that I've been preparing myself for this kind of work for decades and and not you know not just in the past every single week of my life 
is a lot about uh, preparing myself to be able to, uh, you know, to continue that preparation for speaking to you about what this says. So I encourage you to listen carefully to the counsel of a pastor who cares for you and who considers you a charge before God for which he will give an account one day. And by the way, that's not something I prefer to believe. I wish it weren't so. But I learned it from, I got it in the Bible. (laughs) The Bible tells me that if I'm a shepherd if they call me pastor i'm not just responsible for my own soul before god which is really the way i'd prefer it that's that's enough of a load right there but that it's it's your faith too and your soul too so so with all that the book i was given is titled return from tomorrow is published in 1978 and therefore one of the earliest examples of that heaven tourism genre. If you, well, one of the early examples. I was thought of that when I wrote that. I thought, well, Dante's Inferno, that's a pretty early example. But he didn't, he didn't claim to have been there. He just, you know, wrote about it, made it up in 1472. But... In this case, the author's name is George Ritchie, a medical doctor and psychiatrist of some accomplishment, you know, just, I mean, held some really important positions and, and uh, <coughs> you know, just no, no yokel. His experience occurred in 1943 when he was 20 years old. The book was published in 1978. But when he was 20, he was, he was declared dead in a, Army hospital, the sheet was pulled up over his head when an orderly went to prepare him for double pneumonia, double pneumonia. When an orderly went to prepare him for a transfer to the morgue, he showed some signs of life, some movement, and, and, he, and he eventually uh, recovered. Uh, but during the time when that body was under the sheet, George, by his account, was quite active. And he, he got up, he stepped out of his body, walked down the hall, stepped away from his body, walked down the hall, there's somebody coming the other way, and he's saying, get out of the way, but the guy coming the other way can't hear him, and he just walks right through him, and just whoosh, right through him, very much like, I saw that scene in Ghost. That was Patrick Swayze, that very thing happened to Patrick Swayze. But the, that, that movie didn't come out until 12 years after, so I'm not saying he got it from the movie. I'm not saying that. But it reminded me very much of it. But he, he, tries, to, and he tries to lean on a guy wire, and it, his hand just goes right through it. You know, so so that you, get, you get the point. He's in a disembodied state. And so he, he writes, Was this what death was? The separation of one part of a person from the rest of him? Which is actually, I want to say here, that's the beginning of a, of a good biblical explanation of death. Death is the separation of one part of us from the rest of us. But to really get to a full, a full definition of death, but according to the Bible, you'd have to explain what death, has to do, what death does to the part left behind you know, and the effects going forward as well. It's not just the separation. 
You know, when you die, your body just doesn't go on its merry way. And the spirit part of you goes somewhere else. Oh, something happens to part of you as a result of death. But that's actually the beginning of a good biblical destination, the separation of one part of a person from the rest of them. He, he finds himself in the presence of a, of a light uh, so bright no earthly eye can look at it, but which he knew, and knew, he knew instinctively. He, he knew that this was not just a light. It wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't just a, a reality. It wasn't an object. It was a person, and it was a man, and he knew instinctively that this was the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees all the events. There's this light, and he knows it's Christ somehow. Well, he says, he's commanded, you're in the presence of the Son of God. And he says, it's not like a voice came to him. It's just like this thought formed in his head that was not from him. And he sees all the events of his life portrayed in front of him simultaneously. It's like on the walls around. He sees all of it, all at once. He sees, you know, everything that's ever happened to him you know the good and the bad and the ugly and the things of which he's the proud moments and the shameful moments he, he sees it all there and he's just overwhelmed with the thought what have you done with your life what have you done with your life and he's and you know, on the whole you know there's a lot of things there he's seeing before him and he's he's disappointed himself and there are things he's ashamed of full of regret about and he and he writes he writes if i'd suspected before that there was mirth m-i-r-t-h mirth in the presence beside me you know joy overflowing joy now i was sure of it the brightness seemed to vibrate and shimmer with a kind of holy laughter not at me and my silliness, not a mocking laughter, but a mirth that seemed to say, in spite of all the error and tragedy, joy was more lasting still. And in the ecstasy of that laughter, I realized that it was I who was judging the events around us so harshly, all the events of his life. It was I who saw them as trivial or or self-centered, or unimportant. unimportant. No condemnation came from the glory shining around me. He was not blaming or reproaching. He was simply loving me. Now, now can you understand why my radar's chirping a little bit here? The needle's kind of just... You know, is, is Jesus, okay, where are we going here? Is Jesus not the judge of the living and the dead just because he's so full of love? Are, are God's love and God's judgment really so incompatible? Uh, is the real forgiveness we all need, self-forgiveness? Is, is self-forgiveness the key to, you know, getting through the judgment? If you forgive yourself and you don't judge yourself, you're, you're fine. Is, would there be no judgment left if we just stop judging ourselves? I mean, how does that square 
with the Father giving all judgment to the Son. I got that idea from John 5, 22. The Father's given all judgment to the Son. Or, and He has given Him authority to execute all judgment because He is the Son of Man. That's John 5, 27. Or, and He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's Acts 10, 42. Or, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. Or, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, how does that square with that? Rich, he's shown souls in hell, or the first, the first level of hell, or the outskirts of hell, you know, the, uh, you know, it's not quite. He says, "Not the lake of fire." I didn't see the lake of fire, and he's not doesn't deny that that exists. But he says something. It's something else. It's a it's a form, and there's the uh, which which actually interfaces or supposedly interfaces with the present physical world of living people. And so you see there's a money-obsessed businessman. He's still scheming and he's still barking orders, but no one can hear him. He's dead. No one's paying attention to what he says. But he's still chasing the dollar. He's still chasing the money. And the, you know, he can't impact anything, but he's still kind of involved in it. And there's a woman craving a cigarette, but she can't pick it up. She's, she might see a cigarette, but she can't grab it. She's immaterial. She's got... She has no bodily, so it's just frustration. She's trying it. She would love a cigarette so much, but she can't get a hold of one. Something like that in Ghost, too, I think. The guy in the subway who craves a smoke. The, uh, uh, the, and, but by the way, he didn't get this from a movie. That movie came a lot later. There, there's a mother haranguing her son. There, a mother, a deceased mother, you know, haranguing her son who's living. And says, I told you so. Why didn't you listen to me? You know, she's on him and she wants them to do something. He doesn't hear. He's oblivious because to his deceased mother's presence, there's a suicide victim or suicide, you know, someone who committed suicide uh, begging forgiveness. He's going, I didn't know what it would do to everybody in the family. I didn't know that it would be. But nobody can hear him. Nobody can hear him. And, and then he writes, the author writes, quote, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'd never been any good at memorizing Scripture, but those words from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount sprang into my mind now like an electric shock. Perhaps these insubstantial people, the businessman, the woman begging cigarettes, this mother, although they could no longer contact the earth, still had their hearts there. Which struck me as a rather novel and fanciful interpretation of what Jesus was saying when he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That in the app, that it just seems a stretch to me that when Jesus says that, what he meant was that when you die, if your heart's all wrapped up in earthly things, when you die, you won't, 
you won't have a body you won't be here in LA but you'll still be here you'll still be trying to do those things but be nothing but frustration because you can't do anything you can't contact that world anymore he writes an eternity like that the thought shuddering through me surely that would be a form of hell I had always thought of hell when I thought of it at all as a fiery place where evil men like Hitler would burn forever but what if one level of hell existed right here on the surface unseen and unsuspected by the living people occupying the same place what if it meant remaining on earth but never be again being able to make contact with it Well, that would be a hell indeed. It's, it's a little disconcerting for people living, too. The dead people all around you and trying to talk to you and take things from you. And little sixth senses. Sixth sense-ish. <laughs> he sees a further level of hell where the deceased are interacting with each other. Not with the earthly, not living people, but they're interacting with each other. But this same sort of uh, frustration because they're still trying to do things. They're fighting each other, but they, they can't, try, can't land any blows. So they're two of them entwined. They're just fighting each other. But they're swinging right through each other. And they're not, made, you know, there's some that are seeking sexual gratification from others. And they, but they, they're disembodied. It's just nothing but futility and, and frustration. And yet, he writes, not one of those bickering beings on the plane had been abandoned. They were being attended, watched over, ministered to. And the equally observable fact that it was not one of them knew it. If Jesus or his angels were speaking to them, they certainly did not hear it. And here I got to tell you, my radar beeps again, my, ra my needle's wiggling again. It says, is he suggesting continuing chances to repent or to respond to uh, the appeals of God if they, after a life of sin and unbelief? It, the same radar beep went off this line. It was his, by which he meant Jesus. It was Jesus' light. His compassion in which I was seeing the awfulness and that shed a ray of hope even in hell. A ray of hope even for those in hell. Might they still come around? Might they still hear Jesus calling? Might they be re respond to the ministering angels? How does it, and just a question comes to my mind, how does that square with, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life? Those are the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 12, uh, Matthew 25, 46, red letters and all. He catches a glimpse of heaven too, or the outskirts of one, or one of many forms, which appears a college campus of... Uh, uh, that is uh, that all other college campuses are an imperfect copy of and if you you know if you've ever been to college you can sure see how it could be like heaven you know um, lovely pastoral grounds 
free from making free from uh, mundane concerns like making a living or dinner uh, free to free to give full attention to the development of your mind still plenty of free time thousands of people your age half of them of the opposite sex uh, ball games on the student activity card meal plans knowing everything and home for Christmas yet I mean, you know you I I can certainly see heaven as a college campus so I won't take them to task very much there although I did wonder if this is a Christian college <laughs> or if there was a chapel for worship services if so he didn't see it or mention it now, I have long comforted Christians that heaven is more than the never-ending worship service in the sky that some secretly worry about. But come on, there's going to be some. <laughs> the victorious worship of the Lamb is central to heavenly life, and I get that from the Heaven Visitation resource called Revelation. After his recovery... Uh, he met a man later, you know, he recovers, he goes to Europe at the end of the, near the end of the war, and uh, he, I, if I have this right, he runs into someone that, in whom he recognizes the same kind of Christ spirit that he had encountered in the light during his uh, near death, or, or he would say death experience. He said the same, you know, this person he met, same non-judgmental acceptance, same love, same caring, same joy. And he recognized it as the same Jesus that he had encountered before. And he, and he writes about it. They were echoes only, this time imperfect, transmitted through a fallible human being. But at least I knew now from whom the message was coming. I knew that afternoon that if I wanted to feel the nearness of Christ... And I did want that above everything else. I would have to find it in the people that he put me before he put before me each day. And it's just an observation. But I find that the closest I feel to Christ is oftentimes when there is no one else around at all. Christ's presence doesn't have to be transmitted to you through your interaction with another person you know i i find it's it's private prayer it's the silence before him it's a secret dev devotion but, but my radar went off again when it became apparent that this person who so exhibited the christ spirit was no believer in christ at all and it occurred to the person who gave me the book, too, because I believe that person wrote in the sidelines, was he a Christian? Apparently not. So I'm saying, you mean, here's what I would get if I take it at face value. You mean, you mean it's not necessary to believe in Christ, to know about Christ, to believe in Christ, for Christ to shine through your character, your personality, your interactions with other people does christ indwell the unbelieving as well as the believing well the author thought so and he spent his life seeking christ in people of all faiths or no faith and and i feel universalism's nose a little bit more into the tent 
Everybody's going to make it. Everybody's going to be fine. Because God loves so much. And ultimately, it's not going to matter what you believe. Or when you believe. It, it, uh, God's love will get you there. And overall, I found the author somewhat coy in how he presents his ideas in Return from Tomorrow. Because, you know, like I say, my little radar is going... I'm a little suspicious of this. I'm a little suspicious of that. Is he, what's he trying to say? What's he getting at? But he wrote more after he wrote Return from Tomorrow. And he spoke more. It's 1978. You can YouTube him. And you can see interviews that he did with, uh, you know, with uh, Joan Rivers when Joan Rivers had a TV show, talk show type thing. And he can read them. But he, even when return to tomorrow, even if you just confine yourself to return to tomorrow, from tomorrow, you still get the idea, and I get the, the sense that there's no judgment to come except for your own judgments of yourself. God doesn't judge. Jesus doesn't judge. Only you judge you. And that death is only a passageway to the next world, even if the next world is is one of hell's various forms. There's still hope if you will finally die to your earthly pursuits and begin to love as Jesus loves. The, and the path of love can be manifest in all persons, no matter, no matter what your faith or even whether you have a faith. And, and I feel a worldview coming together here, a faith coming together. It just isn't Christianity. We do live in a moral universe and all judgment has been given to the Son and judge in righteousness He will. Uh, he does love us. That's why He came. <laughs> to bear that judgment for us if we'll have it. There's no salvation outside of Christ and no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. And death is not simply a door uh, to, that we pass on a, go through in a, on a spiritual journey. It's a robber and an enemy. It's the last enemy which will de de be defeated and overcome and undone forever for all who are in Christ. So I find him a little coy in, you know, in these things. I think that's what he's getting at in, in uh, Return from Tomorrow, but, but what, he, what he wrote more and after that and what he's, things he said. And, and you know, if, if you read Return from Tomorrow, you might not even know about these last few things I'm going to tell you about. Because they're in other books that he wrote or, or appearances that he made. Here's what he wrote in a subsequent book, My Life After Dying, in another book, My Life After Dying. Man, this is much more clear. Man, with the help of the dogmas of Western Christianity through the Roman Catholic Church, stressed fallen man with Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. The churches have not explained our, potent our potential as gods, our potential of becoming sons of gods, like Jesus, with our God-given created power. 
He wrote, Jesus showed us the God that God our Father created us to be. Now, he's not a Mormon. He sounds pretty Mormon, though. And those, <laughs> He's not a Mormon. We're going to become gods if we get it right. Here, Christ showed us that he had to go through the death of his physical self in order for the resurrection of his spiritual self to take place. I think that his death on the cross also symbolized that we must realize we are dead before we can be raised up by the resurrected Christ within us. He wrote, I believe that being willing to follow such a total surrender to God's will will bring about a resurrection and an ascension of the transformed self which can change a world into a heaven on earth. He, Jesus, started this transformation first in himself to show what can happen to all who follow him. Now again, it's much more clear and a worldview is coming into place and a faith is coming to place. Once again, it just isn't Christian faith. It just isn't a biblical world view the truth is that you will become like christ in your character if you are in christ at all but you will never be god or a god or a christ you will forever bow the knee to christ but you will not be a christ the truth is that Christ's death on the cross was not primarily to show us anything, but to secure our uh, deliverance from sin and death, to secure our salvation. The truth is that death is not a mere passageway to any number of realms of afterlife, but once again, it is a thief, it is a robber, it is a last enemy. It is privation of life as God gave it to human beings. Jesus came to defeat death, to undo it, to banish it forever. Resurrection is not something that happens in your inner self or your private self or your higher self or your spiritual self when you do something to your lower self, to your physical self or, or, or anything like that. Resurrection is the undoing of death. The overcoming of death is it an act of God. It's not something you do at all. You know what resurrection is? Resurrection is an empty tomb where your bones used to be but they're not anymore. Ascension is not some sort of graduation to a higher spiritual plane. Ascension is the resurrection of Jesus Christ going up into heaven from which he will return, and he will return in the same way that he, that he left. And when he returns, he's coming as the judge of both the living and the dead, and he is going to bring heaven to bear on the earth. It will be true that his kingdom will come, God's kingdom will come, on, and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, that is Christianity. So, yes, heaven is for real, so is hell, 
But you already knew that. You already knew that. The Word of God told you all about it, or all God wanted you to know about it for now. But don't worry. You'll know all you want to know about heaven soon enough if you are in Christ. And you'll know more than you wanted to know about hell if you neglect the salvation that is yours only through faith in Christ. His death for your sin, His resurrection for your justification. So don't let someone who may or may not have died, who may or may not genuinely believe they had an experience that was true and not a delusion, don't let anyone tell you that this heaven relocations resource doesn't have it quite right about what heaven is like, about what hell is like, or who goes there and why they go there. Let the Bible guide you. Let the Bible be God's word to you where you get truth and believe it, follow it, obey it, rest in it. Believe in the, in the Christ of the Scriptures. Follow the Christ of the Scriptures. Obey the Christ of the Bible. Rest in the Christ of God's Word. Uh, Father, thank you that Jesus has prepared a place for us. Thank you for saving us from sin and death through faith in Him. Thank you for your word that teaches us, corrects us sometimes, reproves us sometimes, trains us in righteousness. Thank you for the fellowship of the church in your household of faith. Thank you that we get to conclude our time together today with a public proclamation of Christian faith by one of our young people with a meal and enjoying the company of one another. May it be a foretaste of the reunion and the fellowship to come for all who are in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. It's that I've been saying. It went down in the river. It's published that way. Down in the river to pray. I suspect the Cohen brothers don't know how Christian people work. <laughs> <laughs> so I invite you as we sing this, because we're going to go down to the river, and we're going we're gonna to have, that's where we have our picnic, and, and we're going to baptize uh, Andre. And, uh, and so I invite you to, if, to, to sing if you want to. If you're going to stay dry, <laughs> I invite you to sing, uh, go, to go down to the river to pray. So let's, let's stand and sing. And we won't have a benediction today because we're not done today. Hope to see all of you at, at the lake.